0: everybody, Scott Burnside back for another edition of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. Once again, Eric Dehachek stepping into the breach as Pierre Lebrun continues to float his way to R&R. And Eric, how are things in the Coorthas? You notice I've remembered the different cottage regions of Ontario now. How are things in the Coorthas? Uh,
1: <laughs> well, since the last time we spoke, Scott, things have, uh, have cooled down, which is a blessing and uh things have been have been really good uh you know the, the the difference of course between Pierre floating by on his floaty with a margarita in his hand and and me sitting in the back office here for seven hours a day is like night and day, so at some point uh I may be ready for. Uh, for a vacation, but for now, this is a very pleasant way to work
0: well, and there's been a ton of news which has unfolded since you and I last spoke eric and I get to i i i get i'm always excited to have our guests but and it'll 'll sound like Eddie Haskell dating myself here, but i'm so pleased to have our next guest join us today seventh all time in games coach in the n h l sixth all time in wins coaching in the n h l and as of just a few days ago, the new head coach of the New Jersey Devils, Lindy Ruff. I'm wondering, are you still having trouble processing? Oh, yeah, that's that's my new gig. That's my new title. Or are you are you right in it already?
2: No, I'm I'm right in it uh, right away. Uh, a great opportunity. Humbled by the opportunity. Uh, uh, really looking forward to working with uh, Tom Fitzgerald and and. And building something uh, really good in New Jersey.
0: Lindy, I had a chance to talk to Tom the other day, and uh, he and I, we've known each other a long time, covered him in Toronto at the end, and he was telling me a story about when you were a young assistant coach in Florida, and Tom was had been uh, taken in the expansion draft, and he admitted maybe he was, you know, maybe not coasting but maybe not too worried about his place in the lineup and he recalls you taking him aside and actually happened to be in New Jersey and you pulled him aside and said you need to up your game or you're going to be out of the lineup and it was something that he remembered very clearly and and really had a lasting impression on him and I I wonder when you think of Tom who's of course just moved into the full-time GM role what what do you remember of him as a player and and what do you look forward to about working with him now and in, in, in getting the Devils back into a, a place where they're a playoff team every year?
2: Well, the, the one thing I I remember from uh, my Florida days is I, I don't even remember that conversation, but it it was probably based on uh maybe a game, maybe a few shifts inside the uh, a, a game, but he was a tremendous competitor. He was really hard to play against. He went through people. Uh and we're talking about a guy that uh, played over a thousand NHL games now, which uh I, I just find that incredible because of the way he played, how hard he competed. Uh I think it speaks volumes about uh, you know, the type of player that uh, Tom was. So uh, you know, we had we had lots of conversations in, in this process. Uh you know, Tom's passion for the game, my passion for the game, uh uh, some of the conversations early on here were, were just uh, incredible conversations.
1: Just to pick up on that, Lindy, uh, you know, obviously to a coach as long as you have coached, uh, there have been times when you've had to change and evolve because the game changes and evolve it evolves. And yet I think there are some elements of coaching that that don't change. What, what have you found philosophically over the span of your career uh, where you have had to change? And what are the fundamental things that that? that are still the same from, from the moment that you, you, you set out as a head coach?
2: Well, as you mentioned, there, there's been lots of change. I started my career obviously in Buffalo and I, I think at the start, uh, I was labeled a defensive coach. Uh, as our team evolved and even post lockout, uh, I was highly accused of being too offensive of a coach <laughs> um, and, and even e- even the you know the Dallas days, uh you know it, it, we were we were a, a very good offensive team uh you know one of the top 5 teams every year in, in in offense uh i i think where the game has really evolved and the coaching real has really evolved evolved has been uh the the relationship that you have to have with your players uh you know, you you can try to instill something. You can try to play a certain way. Uh, you can you can tell the players you got to do this, you got to do that. Um, for the most part, they want to know why, and and then they want to know why why is it good for them? Uh, because we're dealing with a, a group of players that now uh, the skill level is incredibly high on on every team. Uh, each player, you know, br- really brings a different package, and you got to utilize. So if, if you're going to ask them to do it a certain way or play a certain way, uh, you got to you got to really lay down uh, the reason why. Why is this going to be? And for the most part, it's going to be for the betterment of the team and you're going to win more games. Uh, but for me, it's 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 not trying to make players play all the same way. I think uh, you've got to play the players to their fullest potential and you've got to give them an opportunity to do that. Uh, so. The communication inside the game, I think, is is paramount. Uh, the relationship you have with the players is is paramount in in today's game, and I I really feel that's that's the biggest difference.
0: Lindy, I, I, just sort of piggybacking on that, your experience in New York with the Rangers, working with David Quinn. I mean, that team went through. A, a metamorphosis, I suppose, got very young, high skill, and I wonder if maybe there were lessons you learned in your time with the Rangers that you feel will be especially applicable to a Devils team that is chock full of very young talent, but you know needs to needs to grow and mature uh, to take advantage of that.
2: Well, I, I think we are in a similar situation where uh, the second. Year in New York, we we went younger. Uh, A lot of the uh, veteran personnel left. uh, You know, we're talking McDonough, Nash, and uh, J.T. Miller. There, uh, there, there was a huge change. Kevin Hayes went to uh, Philadelphia, Uh, so our back end got retooled. We had some young defensemen. We we have we had a lot of uh, young forwards that were stepping in into the lineup. Uh, so, so very similar, uh, and I, I think you take from that, you know, trying to get a lot of these young players to a place where you know you can win hockey games every night. Uh, you know, I was in charge of the defense, and I had uh, D'Angelo and, and Fox and Lindgren and uh, Hayek, uh, another young defenseman that was split time between Hartford and New York. Uh, so trying to get them to understand that, uh, you know, we're going to have to play a certain way, uh, ultimately talk to them a lot about the, how hard we're going to have to compete, the type of compete. And the compete for the, those players is different. Uh, you know, Lindgren's compete is a lot different than Fox's compete. So, uh, you know, they play different games, but at, at the same time, I thought those players came along nicely. I thought that, uh, the defense grew as a group, um, I also think that defending is a, is a five-man job, and you know some of your younger defensemen—they need help. They need help from forwards. There's going to be mistakes made. You need you need players to to cover when uh, those mistakes. So it's not if if one person gets beat is it's where's where's the rest of the personnel going to be when that player has been beat, and can you help
1: them out? You must be excited about the you know of these young players that uh, New Jersey has in the system. Does does this Odd pause that we're in, where you're you're basically not going to be playing for you know probably training camp in end of October, beginning of November. Uh, does that give you more time to to study video, to communicate with players one on one, to really get a sense of who all these people are before you actually have to hit the ice with them? I
2: I believe that's the advantage I'll have is uh, we, we do have some time. I think uh, in some cases. Uh, It'll be good for for some of the young players. They should get uh, a pretty good handle on on the fitness end and make some good progress that way. On a personal front, I have plenty of time to reach out uh, and and try to build a relationship. Try to get them to understand that uh, this is the way we're gonna we're gonna play as a team, and this is the way we're gonna be successful. So, uh, I'm looking forward to that part. I've uh, the past few days, I've been uh, I've been going through. Uh, through management and coaches and, and right now, uh, you know, by the end of the week, I'm, I'm looking forward to to start reaching out to the players.
0: Well, what was the process like Lindy? I mean, you talk about the Rangers and, uh, now they're getting ready for a best of five series against the Carolina hurricanes. And is that, will that be hard for you to watch uh, the Rangers specifically and and the rest of the teams in the play in round and the round robin or I'm just curious about what that would be like for you, because you you were committed to that group and helped them grow and and see where they're at right now.
2: Well, you know, it it definitely eats at me a little bit because uh, we had we were we were playing so well uh, as a team when when we were hit with the pandemic in in March. Uh, we had won nine straight road games uh, and then lost a game in Colorado and in overtime. Uh, we had a couple of players up front that looked like uh, we're going to score 40 goals in the league. Uh, we had, again, I'll mention the defense, one of the highest scoring uh, defense in the league. So we, we had a lot of things going and uh, we had three goaltenders that, that were all, all were playing for us and winning games. And, uh, so I think that part, you know, uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see because uh, I, I think they can be a, a very, very dangerous team uh if they get back to the form that
1: they're at uh, pre-pandemic how did sabanajad get so good uh, lindy i i i i scotty scotty and i are, are in, a, in a fantasy hockey pool together and we were neck and neck uh, down the stretch and i had sabanajad on my team for years and years and years and he just like so you know the trade secret when when you have a guy on your fantasy team you watch them a little more closely and i couldn't believe how good he was this year. He was, you know, to me he he might have been the most underrated player in the league. you always talk about the most underrated. I think Alexander Barkov was won that title for like five years in a row. I watched the ways of had sort of took his game to the next level, I'm thinking, wow, he was, a, he was a superstar. At least that's what it looked like for me. How, how, how did that happen? What was that metamorphosis like for you as a coaching staff?
2: Yeah, I, I think you've pretty well explained it. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> if, I think for Mika, and, and I, I, I love Mika as a player. What a good competitor. He, he pays attention to every part of the game. Um, I think I believe that part of it came a couple of years ago when, uh, when he, he transformed his body. He got himself in tremendous, uh, tremendous condition. Uh, you know, from my first year there to last year there, a uh, huge change in, in, in where he was at on, on a fitness level. And I, and I just believe that the, uh, it, it made a big difference in his game. He, he can play 25, 26 minutes, and you never see fatigue in his game. Uh, mm, interesting. Which, for me, is in today's game, You know, usually one or two nights, uh, you will say, boy, he doesn't have it tonight. This guy's got no legs. Uh, in, in Mika's case, uh, there were very few, if any, nights that uh, he couldn't get up and go. Uh, so I think that was the biggest difference. Uh, I think that's a conversation that if you had with Mika, I think he would even admit that probably he wished uh, that part or, or or the way he trained you know, two or three years ago to come into camp uh, all summer I think made the biggest difference for him. Uh, he has all the tools. Uh, he's got a great shot. Uh, he sees the ice well. Uh, he kills penalties. Uh, he's your number one power play guy. Uh, so I think underrated is 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 the best word for him. I don't think he will be underrated much longer.
1: <laughs> Touche. Uh,
0: Lindy, I'm curious. I know I don't want to date Eric, but he actually covered NHL playoff series when they were best of fives, and I, I don't know if you've ever coached in a best of five, but when you look at the process, it's going to – unfold for the Rangers and 15 other teams in less than three weeks is there what's the greatest challenge do you think in coaching in that kind of play round in that uh in that kind of environment uh, uh, and with so much on the line I,
2: I've put a lot of thought into you know how that will unfold I think you're gonna have to make some quick decision on I mean every team has a a roster that uh, is going to involve around 30 players, so you may have to make some quick decisions on personnel in a seven-game series. Maybe a player, you know, isn't up and running, and you know he gets a second game or a third game in a in a five-game series. Uh, I think your patience will have to be pretty thin, and and the personnel you're going with is going to have to be the guys that are that are absolutely going the best for you. Um, you know, inside a five game, you know, I also think that a goaltender can win you, win you a game. If he wins you two games, you're almost off to the next round. So it's, uh, it's going to be a, a situation, I think, where you're going to have to make some quick adjustments. You're going to have to worry about more about how your team is playing and how your personnel is playing than, than what the other team is, is doing.
1: And did you play in the, in that best of five? Because what I was telling Scott off the air that my, my recollection was you'd play Wednesday, Thursday night at home, travel on Friday, play Saturday and Sunday. A lot of times half the league was eliminated in six days. Like it, it went by like that. Uh, that that's you know, what I remember about it for four or five years before they yeah, changed. definitely. I de-
2: definitely played in those games. And I think you described it perfectly was uh, you played back to back. You traveled, you played back to back. Yep. Yeah. And. Uh, less than a week, you were done. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, again, I don't know if, if that's how it's going to unfold uh, uh, this time around or if they'll just go every other day. Uh, I think because you're in a hub city and you're right there, uh, it'd, be, it'd be easy to play back-to-back. You have no travel involved. So uh, I don't think there'll be a lot of time off.
0: <laughs> Lindy, before we let you go, I'm I'm just curious whether... You know when you take the job in New York, whether you are at at some point in the back of your mind or if there's always a part of you that's wondering if you'll get another chance to be a head coach and and if that's the case, what's like for you now to have this opportunity in in New Jersey and whether it's whether you feel differently about it than you might have imagined now that you do have this opportunity again?
2: well, again, i'll say i'm I'm humbled by the opportunity I think that you don't know when that, that next opportunity is going to show up and, or, or if it is going to show up. Uh, I went to New York uh, in conversations with Elaine Vigno talking about trying to better myself uh, because he had asked me, why why would you come and be my assistant? And and we talked about uh, neither one of us had won a cup. Uh, both of us had had uh, good success but had never won the ultimate prize. And I, I just said, Davey, maybe there's... Uh, there's some things I can learn from you. Maybe together we could win a cup, uh, but we could uh, become better coaches by the end of it, and uh, that was my goal. I didn't know where it would lead. Wow,
0: that's great. Well, it's it, it is great to catch up with you, and and I think it's uh, it's going to be a ton of fun for you. That Devils team has got a lot of really high end talent, and uh, and hopefully, hopefully. Um, you'll get a chance uh, maybe even before an actual training camp to get on the ice and, and work with those kids in New Jersey. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time and hanging out with us today and and the best of luck to you.
2: Well, thank you. Uh, Great hanging out with you guys.
0: All right, Eric, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm I'm curious to see what you think about uh, Lindy and his new role in New Jersey. We do have to take a brief break, so don't go anywhere because we'll be right back. Let's start with a basic truth. Smelling good is important. And how about a second basic truth? Hawthorne smells really good. And finally, a third basic truth. Getting Hawthorne cologne is so easy. Hey, Father's Day's long past, but surely you've got special events coming up, loved ones, special friends, people that might enjoy smelling better. Well, what do you do? The best thing about Hawthorne is it's so easy. Take a quick two-minute quiz and Hawthorne tells you the two colognes that are best for you. One for work and one for play. Totally risk-free with free shipping and free returns. So check out Hawthorne at hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E on the end and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co and use my promo code, ATHLETIC, to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorn.co, and use my promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. Don't forget it. Eric, I, you know, listen, following social media is nowhere to go to get a, a, real, a real handle on anything in our world. And certainly hockey is no different than that. And I think it's fair to say there was some... I don't know whether it was skepticism or maybe a little bit of surprise that uh, that Lindy Ruff had been the guy that ultimately Tom Fitzgerald tabbed to come in and and be the head coach with the New Jersey Devils. But I know in ta- chatting with you, you you like this Ira. You like this fit and I wonder why.
1: Well, uh, you know, again, you know, the I I go back with Lindy to 1978-79 season when he was playing uh uh, for the Lethbridge Broncos, and I was in the building when uh, when he broke his leg on a Saturday afternoon at the, at the Calgary Corral, and uh, he was projected to be a first-round pick in that really great draft, and he ended up uh, falling to 32nd overall and went to, to Buffalo, but he was a top, top player in, in, in junior, and, and just because of, of that connection as much as anything else, I always tried to sort of stay in touch with him. Um, as a, you know, first as a player and, and, and then as a coach. But what I always liked about Lindy is, I always think of a, when I evaluate a hockey coach, I think of the hockey coach as like a sports editor or a teacher that you may have had. And who are the people that make the impression, the, the, a, a good impression on you? And what is it that they do that allows, that, that you know, that makes you wanna work for them, that makes you, you wanna get better. And so I always thought that, that Lindy was, um, that, that kind of teacher that you had in school that you you, you, you taught you, you thought about twenty years after the fact that made an impression on you that that demonstrated that he really cared about you um, and and was trying to help you get better and so there's there's a lot of different. Philosophies to coaching. There's a lot of different tactics to, to coaching, but I think it, ultimately it comes down to to how you motivate players, and I think that has always been true. But I think it's especially true nowadays. And, and I just think that that he has a manner about him, and you could just tell, you know, in, in the interview that we did that that I think the players on that New Jersey Devils team will, for the most part, like the vast majority are going to buy in because. Because he will, he, he, essentially his message is going to be, I'm going to try to make you better so that our team gets better. And, and you know, it's a, it's a fairly simple message. But I think the, the fact that, you know, he, like he really cares. He cares about people. You know, that when, when they had that group uh, in Buffalo where it was him and, and James Patrick and uh, Darcy Regeer was the, the general manager, the three of the, of the best people that, that I know in the game. And I, I just think people like that succeed. I mean, there's a reason that he's coached. 1,493 regular season games in the NHL because people will play for him. And that to me is the key in in this day and age. Now, you know, there are an awful lot of coaches that over time have not been able to evolve because the game has changed. And that was why when I asked Lindy that question, I was curious to see what his answer would be, because you have to continually change. Tactics change. attitudes change i mean you made a reference to just a minute ago social media is a factor now in uh in 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 all the noise that surrounds you but i i i, I like him as a coach and i really like him as a person and i i, I think it i think it's a great hire and you know, I, I think most of the criticism yeah. seem to center on his age um you know as someone that uh, that falls into that older demographic myself yeah. right now yeah. I, i'm here to tell you that you know like if you still have the same energy levels that you had when you were a young person, and I have them, and, and I think Lindy does too. Then, then all you can do is, is impart the wisdom that you gain o- over the years. I, I, it shouldn't be a factor. Uh, you know, he is not a godding old man. I think he's, a, I think he's a, been an effective coach for a long period of time, and um, you know, just in, in, in terms of the way he handles players, um, it will, it, it's going to be a good experience for uh, for those those young guys in New Jersey as they try to get to the next level.
0: Yeah, I, I'm with you. And I, I got to tell you, I, I guess it's because it. I didn't, you know, you think about coaches who are available and we, we all know what happened early in the season. And Mike Babcock and Gerard Gallant and Bruce Boudreaux. And you look, you know, you go down the list of 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 high end coaches that are out there. It, it is sometimes I mean, I think I'm guilty of this. You sometimes get a little tunnel vision on. OK, well, what? You know, what, what What are the options for a guy like Tom Fitzgerald, who's, you know, the the dynamic in New Jersey is different than even a year ago when Ray Shero was still the GM there in terms of, OK, where are they at in their evolution? You know, Taylor Hall was still there. They uh, felt that Corey Schneider was going to be able to bounce back in goal and be an elite goaltender again. And, you know, things didn't work out that way. And there were there were a number of changes. Of course, Ray was fired and and Tom ultimately became the GM but in talking to Tom I was so impressed with him because he's so passionate about this hire and he feels it is the right fit and we talk about this all the time but this is a very young team and they're going to need they're going to need someone who can communicate who can teach who can guide who can come with a firm hand but you know, without turning them off. And I think Lindy sort of addressed this too. They, players want to know why things are happening. And I think he will be able to communicate that. I, I don't know. So I, let me ask, so as we wrap up this part of it, but how... Like, how big a jump do you think that Jersey could make? There's lots of talent there. I think Mackenzie Blackwood looks like he is now sort of morphing into the goaltender of the future for the Devils. I assume they'll probably move to bring in a, uh, you know, sort of a high end, maybe more experienced backup. Um, Is this a team that could turn quickly and be back in a in a playoff hunt, do you think? Or is are they still a, a year or two away?
1: well i i I think they're a year or two away and i and I hope that the the philosophy is is patience and 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 development because i I do think that there is a a temptation in this day and age. Um, you know, because there there is a a, a yo-yo effect to the NHL standing some years where a team can, can have a very poor year one year and, and have a very good year the next. And the Devils are a real good example of that, of a team that has yo-yoed up and down in, in the last couple of years. And I think that sometimes when you have that surge, you seduce you yourself into thinking that you're better than you are. So I look at those pieces and I've always been a big believer in the fact that the, the hardest part of of the job is done. You know, they've got Nico Heeshire there. They've got They've got jack hughes there so those, those pieces getting pieces like that 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 is really really difficult and i believe fitting in the supporting cast while challenging is not the same as getting players that have a chance to to be difference makers and that's how you win i think in the nhl today you need players that are difference makers, and they have two young guys that could evolve into difference makers in time. You know, when I watched the, the Devils play this year, and I have to confess, I didn't watch them as closely as, say, the Rangers, um, you know, Hughes just looked like a guy that wasn't quite ready physically for the NHL. There would be times when, you know, in four on four situations or power play situations where you could absolutely see that the skill level is there. So, you know, when you see someone like that, you realize that, you know, next year will be better than this year. And the year after, you know, his game is going to go to another level. And so I think for the Devils to, to collectively make that consistent surge up uh, the standings that, you know, it, it will require both Hughes and, and Heshire to get to that, you know, early in their primes, make a difference, you know, every shift, you know, force teams to match uh, against you. And, and I just don't think that in Hughes' case that, that he's there yet. And I think it's it's too much to expect that he will even get there next year. I think his ceiling is really high. Uh, but I think it will also take a couple of years to get there. So as long as as organizationally, they're not trying to, to rush things, um, I, I think they're going to be fine. The other thing that they will have is that, you know, because they've moved Taylor Hall, they moved Sammy Vatten, and they're going to have the luxury of cap space going forward. So in terms of the, the new economic picture, which you've written about quite a bit so far uh, at The Athletic, um, there will be opportunities for teams that have a cap space uh, in order to make selective strategic buys in the free agent market. So it will be up to the general manager there, Tom Fitzgerald, to decide when it, the time is ripe to do that. I think that they want to try and leave as many roster spots open for young players to compete for those jobs, to, to allow them to, to develop. But I think that somewhere down the road, in you know, one to two year period, uh, you know, if you can husband that cap space, uh, it will, it, you know, it will serve you uh, in, in an important way uh, uh, way so um, so yeah I think they're absolutely on the right track I just hope that they don't get too impatient too soon
0: Yeah I'm with you because patience is is not in uh, great supply around uh, around the NHL and uh, you know it's a it it's a what have you done for me lately business There's no question about that and it's great You alluded to salary cap uh, space and uh, there's been a uh, oh just a fair bit of uh, uh, news that's happened since you and I last spoke, new CBA, ratification of return to play, uh, the announcement of the uh, Ted Lindsay Award finalists as we start to roll into award season in this most unusual season. So we'll touch on some of that, but we are going to take a brief break and then come back and close out this edition of Two Man Advantage, but uh, don't go anywhere. We will be right back. If you're listening to Two Man Advantage, that means that you are... Probably a huge hockey fan, which is a great thing. Maybe you're a huge fan of Pierre Lebrun, also understandable. I am too. Maybe you're a fan of Scott Burnside. No accounting for taste, but good to have you aboard. And it doesn't matter where you are listening from. You are engaged and loyal. And if you're a business person and you have products that you might like to advertise and sell to like-minded listeners, this is a pretty good place to do it. To advertise on this very show, here's what you should do. Go to www.theathletic.com slash podcast ads. There you can fill out a very simple form. We'll get back to you right away. And let's get this thing going. So go to www.theathletic.com slash Podcast ads today. Uh, Eric, okay, so uh, it, it, I'm just curious what you, you know, when you were watching the the, the massive package that was the new CBA, the, all of the return to play protocols that, um, of course, the NHL's Board of Governors uh, unanimously uh, voted for Friday. Well, the results came in Friday evening, and, of course, the players, it was close to 80%. I think it was 79%. Percent and change voted in favor of the new CBA. Was there were there parts that surprised you, or were there parts that you were like, "Oh, you know what? I, I'm so I'm curious to see how this will work out," or or elements of it that um, that maybe stuck out for you?
1: Well, that's a that's a very broad question, and, yes, and you is. know, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, here's what I would tell you: that you know, we always talk about you know. Surprise! so so i went into this thing with no expectations um and and maybe the only thing that surprised me was the fact that they actually got it done because the history i always say that um you know you can only predict future behavior on the basis of how people behaved in the past so in the past the history of the national hockey league and the national hockey league players association has been a very fractious relationship it's been very difficult for for them to negotiate a peacetime CBA, Um, you know, they've been at war a number of times during Gary Bettman's reign as as commissioner and and with a a number of different people in in the seat as as, as executive director of the NHLPA. So the fact that they were amicably able to negotiate this, this extension and, and set aside the, you know, probably the, the various things that they might have dug their heels in in, in the past and, and and achieved real compromise is maybe the thing that surprised me the most. Uh, you know, I remember a couple of weeks ago, Artemi Panarin, you know, tweeted out kind of a manifesto. And making the point that, you know, we're not going back until we get a CBA. And it almost sounded like, I mean, it sounded like somebody had written it for him, but but mostly it, it sounded like a, a call to arms. And I thought to myself, okay, is there, you know, something going on in the background that 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 may push this thing off the rails? Because I, I've been Pollyanna about it too. I know our, our friend Pierre LeBrun, has written... Uh, extensively about, uh, you know, his sense was that they might actually be able to negotiate a deal this time. I remember being at the NHL Awards in uh, in Vegas a couple of years ago, talking to Gary about the, about the CBA, and I, I felt that the tone had shifted then already that that it wasn't going to be as adversarial a negotiation. And of course, you know, the the coronavirus pandemic has has changed everything. So, uh, I mean, good for them. I, I'm yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised that. Uh, um, that they were able to sort of move off certain positions. You know, the, the idea of a cap on escrow. Like, uh, you know, if you had asked me a year ago, can you imagine any scenario in which there's a cap on escrow? I would have said, no, you know, that's the, you know, as Bill Data likes to say, that, that's the hell they'll, they'll die on. And, and yet it wasn't, you know. So the fact that they that they were able to do that, that you know, that that required the NHL to sort of move off a position that they had dug in on in past negotiations so if then presumably that sort of spirit of compromise was was part of these negotiations and and again good on them for, for getting it done
0: I, I talked to an NHL executive the other day, uh, just before the the final vote came in, and we were talking about the Olympic participation. Which, assuming an agreement with the IOC and IIHF, uh, which I, I, my guess is the IOC will have come to their senses after the debacle. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I know. I know. Hey, talk about being a, a Pollyanna. Maybe that's my yes. maybe that's my weak spot. But after the debacle of 2018, which was that was a tournament a completely forgettable olympic tournament with all due respect to the russians who won and of course the germans who who made quite a showing by going to the gold medal game but listen that was that was not that's not what any hockey fan wants to see not when you've seen crosby and ovechkin and malkin and lundquist and the best of the best go head to head as we have since 98 um so i assume we are going to see the nhl players back in beijing in 22 and uh, you know, who knows what happens, but again, in four years later in Milan in um, 26, is that. You know, is it is it just the fanboy in me, or do you think? And again, just go back to my rambling point. Is this executive and I were chatting, and I said I think that 22 Olympics has the potential to be really important as we try and repair and 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 restructure and rebuild the game coming out of whatever we're left with when when we get through this pandemic. And I think that Olympic Games in Beijing has the potential to be really important in terms of the game's profile. Now, maybe I'm being naive, but First time for Jack Eichel and Austin Matthews and Leon Draisaitl and the and the rest of Connor McDavid uh, in a real best on best true um, Olympic format. I'm I, I'm pumped by it and I think it has the potential to be really important. I know the owners hate it, but I I do think it is an important building block, but maybe not.
1: Well, no, no, no. I, th- I think you're on the right track for two reasons. And and one, you know, so the whole point of of running, of, of bringing teams over to China for for exhibition games in, in the past couple of years, you know Calgary went over and played uh, against Boston two years ago, um, you know, and it was Los Angeles and Vancouver the year before was because as the NHL was trying to expand revenues, they saw this great untapped market for. For, for hockey. So the NBA has made great inroads in, in, in China in terms of its marketing and, and making the league visible there. And, and that's that's an important revenue source for them. And, and the National Hockey League has lagged behind. I think that they believe that, that these these initiatives that they'd taken before coronavirus to, to try to open up that particular market uh, were really important in terms of trying to grow the overall business of hockey. So now we're at a point where the the business of hockey and, and revenues are being slashed uh, they don't know when fans are going to be allowed back in the building you know so box office receipts are in jeopardy for the short and maybe even the medium term so yes on on purely on the financial level uh, i think that it, it could be a really great thing because if the tournament is as good as you think it's going to be then you know. Th- then, then all of a sudden, you know, people in China get interested in hockey. If there is an explosion in growth in hockey, it will be the same as as when the South em- embraced uh, uh, the Southern United States embraced hockey because of expansion to non-traditional markets like Nashville and Dallas and so on and so forth. So, I think that probably, although it hasn't been articulated by the league, that one of the reasons why they were they were prepared to move off of this stand opposing the olympics was because they said hey we have to rebuild our revenues in 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 as many ways as we possibly can and so let's you know, hope that by going into China, all of a sudden, you know, we, we get a foothold uh, in, in that impre- an important market uh, for our product. And so as we try to, you know, reestablish, our, you know, our financial footing, that could be really critical. So that's the financial side. Now, you were you were speaking, I think, more specifically about the hockey side. And of course, I mean, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I've covered the you know, the gold medal finals in, in Salt Lake City, in, in Vancouver, in, in Sochi. And uh, it, it, it's incredible the amount of interest that uh, that, that these things create. I mean, it, it doesn't even matter what the time zone is. I mean, you know, in, when, when those games were going on in Russia, people were getting up in the morning to watch uh, watch the final. The, you know, the, the hockey was thrilling. The results of, of all of those uh, Olympics that have involved NHL, players have been important in different markets it was important in the Czech Republic when they won in, in in 98 it was important in Sweden when they when they won in Turin and you know of course you know how important it was in Canada when they won in 02 and in and in 10 it was just it, it was monumental people dancing in the streets celebrating and so um I, yeah I I think that it uh um, I think, well, I don't know, let me ask you, uh, like, I kind of expected that, so, you know, sort of looking ahead at, at what the new CBA would look like, I, I felt that the league would would back off its position there, and that they would trade that for, for something else. But it was always in my mind that they would be in China just because of the importance of that as a market. Now, did did you see it the same or differently? How, how did you view, you know, you know, what the future would be or did you think that the NHL would be absent from the Olympics uh, indefinitely
0: yeah i like i was I, I really found thought they would find a way to go in 2018 uh, i i really mm. found thought that
1: you really are yeah, pollyanna <laughs> yeah i am
0: well and, and i thought it was a misstep by the NHLPA that it wasn't enshrined in the CBA and the league tried to leverage that by reopening the CBA or at least altering it leading up to South Korea and you know I mean like and especially because the IOC has proven to be such an unbearable partner right like this is you know they, they they those guys have have really messed this up and so they the fact that the IOC was so stubborn in how they approached things like travel costs and insurance and using images and and allowing the NHL and the NHLPA to to market what the they're the most important athletes at the winter olympics. I'm sorry. You know, with all due respect to figure skaters and skiers and listen, the the hockey players are that's the marquee event and the NHL players made it even more so and have since 98. And so they the IOC blew it. And I thought uh, you know, I was afraid after that that maybe that would just be you know, because the NHL owners really do hate it. I talked to an owner last week and I was still, am- he's still, he's still angry <laughs> that they're possibly going back. He's like, I hate it. And I was like, okay. It's because they can't put a, they can't put a number on it. It's hard to quantify for them. And, and I get that. So there are some downsides to, you know, shuttering your business for three weeks every four years. Anyway, um, I, I, I was pleasantly surprised to see it come back in and, and to go back to your point Eric I just think it speaks to how this was a much different process and that in the old world pre-pandemic uh, they might have fought for weeks and weeks over going back to the Olympics and my sense is okay here you know here's the long game we're going to have to get this done very quickly and we'll and from the owner's side they said we'll take a knee on the Olympics and and move on so um I want to ask you just before we close out this episode of Two Man Advantage. Uh, you, uh, you were t- we were talking with Lindy Ruff about the Rangers, and um, and you mentioned Artemi Panarin and the social media presence there. His presence is also uh, part of the news this week, as he is a finalist for the Ted Lindsay Award, which is that's the players' vote on League MVP, and. I'm, you and I have talked about this, but it's always such a curious, you know, it's a curious and an important award because it, sometimes it doesn't completely line up with the Hart Trophy, which you and I vote on as members of the PHWA. And it was announced this week that Artemi Panarin, Leon Draisaitl of the Edmonton Oilers, the Art Ross Trophy winner, and uh, um, Nathan McKinnon of the Colorado Avalanche are the finalists for that award. And I was curious whether you were surprised or because that. You know, the Panarin thing, that was a a late groundswell, I think, um, after the pause and with the announcement of the return to play format that, that he was really considered. Or what's your take on that?
1: No, it's a great question. And uh, I, I was trying to think uh, because I filed my heart ballot so long ago, but I think those are the names that I had at the top of my ballot Uh As well, and um, and I remember writing a column in the Athletic about about how I thought that Panarin was going to get a lot more Hart Trophy support because he is officially not in the class, but not out of the class. And if you look historically at the voting pattern of the Professional Hockey Writers Association, again we're talking about the Hart now, not the the Lindsay. They tend to uh, they are loath to 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 someone even as a finalist who hasn't made made the playoffs so again we're in a very unique situation where we're now you know panarin's team which probably would have missed the playoffs in, in and in a regular season now has a chance to to go on a run i mean lindy you know made a reference to the fact that they were playing very very well before the break and and shister was outstanding if he can come back and, and play at the level that he was at they, they could be a dangerous opponent so so there was a part of me that that thought no that you know they, they got it right i mean i'm, I'm convinced that they've got it right i, I think dry going to win the thing um because um you know it it, it often does go to the to the league uh, scoring champion, but uh, why Why I think the Lindsay is important is because it's a peer award. And I remember when Connor McDavid won it the first time, you know, that's what he said that, you know, like with, without sort of diminishing the heart, you know, I think the words that he used, and I'm paraphrasing were you know, this means more to me because it's voted on by my peers. And, you know, while I respect, you know, you guys as the writers, um, you know, the, the fact that the guys that he's competing with on the ice have, have honored him in that way, that means a lot, that means a lot. And I think, I think also the you know, the wording of, of the, the Lindsay is, is a bit more clear. It basically goes to the best player in the league, you know, and, and the heart trips people up because it's most valuable to his own team. But in the case of Panarin, you know, it, has there been uh, anyone that has been more valuable to his team? When you think about the history of free agent signings and the number of free agents that do not pay dividends for their teams, and then you see Panarin go into into New York and just light it up right away. You know, like often it takes a player a, a good year to when they sign a contract like that to make the transition to deal with the effects of, of the weight of of that that large contract. You know, and, and so often in history, I remember Danny Briere talking about this once that you know every time you go on the ice, you're trying to to justify that that salary, and and, and suddenly you can't play because. Because less is often more when it comes to, to the NHL, and Panarin just went in there and, and didn't miss a, a step. I mean, he was just great from the start. He transformed that, that team. The direction that they were heading in was largely because of, of his work and Zubanajad's on, on offense. I mean, it's it's not a very star-studded offensive cast once you get past a you know a couple of players there. So, so uh, I think he, it's well deserved that he's um, he's in the final three. will you know, sensational for Edmonton this year and, and particularly I effective um, when, when McDavid missed those games early in the year. The, the, the season could have uh gone off the rails in Edmonton very easily with McDavid out of the lineup and Drysidel didn't uh, didn't let it happen. And then what I particularly like about McKinnon because I see him a lot in Calgary is that even with the injuries to uh, Ranton and with the injuries to to landis Scott, it didn't really matter who he was playing with like he was he was great. there were honestly there were times this year Scott when I thought he's as fast as mcdavid and he is he is making the, the uh, a mcdavid like impact on that team. those two guys, boy, they're so much fun to watch and uh, he's you know I mean i had I think I had McKinnon first on my year Taylor Hall won the MVP. I had McKinnon as my choice that year. I've been a big um, supporter of, of him just because I think he's he's a, an absolute difference maker in, in, in the game. So uh, they got it right. It'll be interesting to see if our group gets it right when they announce the, the hard yeah. finalists in, uh, next Tuesday
0: i'm looking forward to that too eric because i i'm with you i'm pretty sure those are my three guys again i have to go back and dig up my the copy of my ballot but uh, i'm that's that's how i had it locked in i think in the in terms of my top 3 and uh yeah it's and it's it is um it is interesting when you see a free agent like Panarin. And I didn't think he would be a bust, but I don't think anyone could have envisioned just how dominant he was. I know Pierre wrote about the Selkie Trophy, which is very... its a, To me, that's the hardest award to to vote for. Mm-hmm. And he had pulled... Uh, either coaches or GMs, and and I know at least one had made the case for Panarin, even though he doesn't kill penalties. But his <laughs> basically, whenever he was on the ice, the other team never had the puck, and, and so that was his. You know, he I you know it did it was sort of you know half tongue in cheek, but that's how dominant he was with that Ranger team. And you and you're right, he's changed really, you know the the, the fortunes of that team in a very very short period of time. Speaking of time. We are pretty much out of time, uh, but before we go, as we always do, we'd like you to give a listen to some of our colleagues here at The uh, uh, Athletic and on the podcast uh, part of things. And Craig Custance was doing some trophy talking this week. He was focusing on the Norris... Trophy, and he asked Nick Bonino of the National Predators and James Reimer of the Carolina Hurricanes and Brendan Dillon of the Washington Capitals to talk about Norris Trophy favorites. I think you can imagine which direction some of them were headed, maybe with Roman Yossi or Jacob Slavin or John Carlson, I don't want to give everything away, but you should give (laughs) that that a listen on this week's episode of The Full 60 at The Athletic, and Wild. TV analyst Ryan Carter joins Mike Russo at the uh, Wild training camp uh, to talk about the Vancouver Canucks, the Wilds' play-in round opponent on Straight from the Source at The Athletic. And you should always check out our comments section for each podcast at The Athletic app. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to Two Man Advantage on Apple. And if you click on the show's URL, theathletic.com slash two-man advantage you will get 40% off your subscription you should do that and Eric if I had anything to say in the matter you should take the rest of the day off because you've done yeoman work here this morning
1: all right well I'll I'll, I'll take that under advisement but I'm looking at this list of things that I have to do today and (laughs) I, I may get back at
0: it for a little while anyway good stuff. Anyway, well, it's always terrific and uh, appreciate your help in, in this matter and uh, good work by you. All
1: right. Thanks, Scott. It's always a pleasure. And, uh, you know, if LeBron wants to continue to, you know, take a vacation, <laughs> I'll happily join you for as long as you need me.
0: I look forward to that, my friend, and, uh, and I may take you up on that.